the whole reason for investing though is you want to have be able to take risk. And the reason why you take risk is you want to have compounded returns over time. Welcome to the Angel Next Door podcast, your gateway to the dynamic world of angel investing. I'm your host, Marsha Dawood, and together we will demystify what it means to invest in early stage companies, who's behind it, and how anyone can be a part of it. If you've ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Securities and Exchange Commissioner Ueda to peel back the layers of the investment world and discuss the intricacies of small business capital formation and startups. Are we giving every ingenious idea a fair chance to thrive, and can we really predict the next Apple? Well, Commissioner Ueda shares with us his views on what's in store for 2024's rulemaking landscape. We also tackle the hot-button issue of who gets to be an accredited investor. Could the rules be stifling innovation by keeping out the citizens who could fuel it? Tune in as we tease apart these issues and examine why embracing risk and failure might just be the key to unlocking America's next groundbreaking achievements. Enjoy the show. Well, Commissioner Ueda, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Well, thank you very much, Marsha. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, 2023, the end of 23 was pretty exciting for you. On December 28th, you were actually sworn in officially for your second term as commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission. So what a way to end the year. So now that we're beginning 2024, can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you see on the horizon this year for the SEC? I see a lot of rule adoptions and finalizations going throughout this year. If you look at, I would say it's uh, probably a, a cycle of someone's uh, chairmanship. The first part, oftentimes, it's dominated by proposals, and then the latter part by finalizations of those rule proposals. And I don't see Chair Gensler's agenda really changing on that. I mean, he was sworn in, I think, in April of 2021, if my memory is correct. And so he's had, at this point, close to three years and to develop a lot of different policy proposals. And we have, I think, had almost a near record number, especially if you look at the first 18 months of his tenure, a lot of different things put out there, which affect all aspects of the capital markets, whether you're a public company or a private company or a private fund advisor, public mutual fund and ETF, the intermediaries, whether they're the clearing agencies or the broker dealers. So it's been quite a lot. So we've had a lot of his proposals out there. And now it's one where I, you, know, you look in, and especially with this year, 2024, being an election year, there are no guarantees. And, and so it's, again, this is not unusual, but many of those who lead, whether it's an agency like the SEC or whether it's various cabinet departments start thinking, well, let's accomplish what we can this year because one never knows what may the election outcome may be. Absolutely. For our listeners that may not be aware, you are one of the five SEC commissioners and each commissioner is appointed to a five-year term. To ensure the commission remains nonpartisan, no more than three commissioners can belong to the same political party. Can you paint for our listeners a picture of what it's like to be an SEC commissioner and how you interact with your fellow commissioners, especially when you may have a difference of opinion. I've been fortunate to be at this agency since 2006 and have previously served two other commissioners as well as former chairman Jay Clayton. So I was lucky when I 
stepped into this, it wasn't exactly an unfamiliar territory. And one thing that I've learned over all of that time that I've been with the agency is that how much of the agency's direction is solely within the realm of the chairman. And there's something called Reorganization Plan 10, and it makes the chairman the chief executive officer of the agency, in essence, who can uh, basically direct all of the staff, all of the policy initiatives, and directs what comes before the the full five-member commission. So what happens is the chairman will decide to what the order is, the timing. We oftentimes do have a lot of discussions, and some of it is based on things. A lot of it, I should say, is based on external events to the agency, what's happening in the markets, what's happening with issues that are being raised out there by either market participants, sometimes the media, sometimes people on the hill. But by and large, all of that gets boiled down to is assigning the staff to do some work on it, do some research, make some proposals. And when the chairman feels it's ready, those get circulated to the other commissioners. So none of the the non-chairman commissioners have the authority to direct anyone at the agency other than our immediate personal staffs. So there's a bit of a joke. The uh, I oversee uh, six people. The, the chairman oversees uh, nearly 5,000. <laughs> so when those ideas come up, whether it's a proposal or, or a rule adoption or interpretive guidance or other things that we need to weigh in on, and I should add, the most common vote we have is our enforcement calendar. Every single enforcement action requires a vote of the commission. And in some cases, it requires multiple votes of the commission when you have more than one defendant or you have different stages. Sometimes it's what to authorize an enforcement action to go to court, and then it's to accept the settlement, and then perhaps at the very end, decide on, on finalizing some civil penalties or disgorgement. Those items all come to the commissioners. We are not allowed to speak collectively in private. Uh, in fact, we no more than two of us can actually talk about an issue because there's something called the Government of the Sunshine Act. We'll oftentimes either talk one-on-one, and it might be what you almost might call a, almost leaks in the chain. I may talk to one other commissioner one-on-one and then go talk to a different commissioner one-on-one and so on, or sometimes they're communicated indirectly through our, our personal staffs or the SEC uh, um, civil service staff. Interesting. So the SEC has four advisory committees, Asset Management Advisory Committee, Fixed Income Market Structure, Investor Advisory, and then, of course, my personal favorite, Small Business Capital Formation, since I happen to participate on that committee. So I'm really curious to ask you about how are these committees helpful to you as commissioners and what can we do to kind of further enhance these benefits and help the SEC? Yeah. Well, all of those, I found those committees have been helpful. Two of them, the one you're on, as well as the Investor Advisory Committee, are statutory, which was directed by Congress. The other two operated under something called the Federal Advisory Committee Act, or FACA. And so both of those have actually expired at this point. So we only have two advisory committees right now. And so you, you pointed out the, the Fixed Income Market Structure Advisory Committee, or what we call FIMSAC here. We also had some called MSAC, the Equity Market Structure Advisory Committee, at one point as well. That was also a, a FACA committee. Now, what I find most useful is 
can you explore issues that may, we might not be looking at right now? And we do, a, I think, a pretty good job. I may not always agree with the policy outcomes when the five-member commission votes as a whole, but usually there's a pretty decent process. The ideas are out there. We have the comment file. People ask for meetings on the, us. We have a lot of, and a lot of lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, you do. <laughs> who are all involved. Uh, and, and a smittering of uh, accountants and economists, but still the lawyers tend to dominate looking at these issues. And I think we get, so if it's on our plate, we're fairly well focused on it. And a lot of the participants, uh, the public, um, whether they're trade associations, companies, investors, institutional investors, asset managers, all make their positions known to us. And so I feel like we've got a pretty good handle on that. There are a lot of other issues, however, that are not on the front burner or subject to a current rulemaking. That's where the advisory committees can be very helpful because now they're they're shining a spotlight on an issue that is not getting otherwise a lot of airtime within the SEC. And I look at the, the advisory committees being most helpful as trying to identify things that can be done, especially ones where there can be a consensus agreed on that make our regulations more efficient or less burdensome, but still maintaining effectiveness, or in some cases, improving effectiveness. Uh, The way I look at our set of rules, I I use a two-by-two matrix. And one is whether or not the rule is effective or not effective. And the other one is whether it is costly or cost-efficient to do. So in the ideal world, we have rules that are effective and cost-efficient. And that's what we want. Regulation is, in fact, a value add to the capital markets. We have a lot of rules that are effective, but they're costly. So to the extent we can reduce that, those, some of those costs while maintaining the effectiveness and basically move it from the effective but costly box to the effective but cost-efficient box, that's what we want to do. And then we have the ones that you know I think are the, really the worst ones, which are, are ineffective and costly. They're not doing anyone any good. Right. Now, there's that fourth box of ineffective and not costly, which kind of people just sort of, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's not really bothering anyone or a big burden. And so those are some of the ones where maybe every 30 years say, oh, yeah, this rule doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. One of those rules, for instance, uh, that I think we probably don't need anymore, but I think there are some rules that say, oh, you need to maintain six copy, paper copies of this particular document. Yeah, it's probably not that difficult to do, but in today's electronic era, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense anymore, but people can easily live with it. And it's not that big of a lift. So that's where I think the advisory committees can really add value is, hey, here are some things you could do. There's some really good bang for the buck because what's happened out there in real life, not as some academic legal exercise, here's some things we can do to make their world either more effective and or less costly. Absolutely. So one of the big things that we've talked about on the committee since I joined in June of 2023 was a lot about the accredited investor definition. Now, you bring a unique perspective because you have prior role with Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs, 
as security counsel to the committee's minority staff. So you've seen there have been several proposals coming from Congress regarding the accredited investor definition. And so for our listeners who aren't familiar, the current thresholds are $200,000 in income, $300,000 if you include a partner, or a million dollars in net worth minus your home. That would make you an accredited investor. So at the ACA, we are, of course, concerned about calls to increase these numbers to inflation and that we believe anyway at the ACA that that would eliminate, you know, 50, maybe even 60 percent of eligible households, severely impacting the capital raising efforts of innovative small businesses, which in turn will result in fewer jobs and less growth. So although the SEC has not recommended such an increase recently, it has received recommendations from Congress and elsewhere to do so. So what is your position on the financial thresholds around the accredited investor definition? I've certainly heard those same uh, suggestions that we just merely index some thresholds that we had. Some of them go back to, I think, 1982 for the the 200,000 annual income threshold. The 1 million is also been around, although we did make some changes, move to exclude the the value of your uh, principal residence right. uh, from the calculation. But effectively, those, those numbers have been the same. I, my view is I'd be very sad if all we did was indexes for inflation because, one, it's unclear to me whether those thresholds we set in 1982 were, were correct to begin with. So merely adjusting for inflation to make that, to adjust a threshold that perhaps was not correctly calculated would not be a, a good approach. The other part is we've learned a lot. Now, when we go back to those original thresholds, part of why we did Regulation D, accredited investor, was we had some case law out there is what did it mean on this exemption from having to register your offering with the SEC for something that did not involve a public offering? So the, the private offering exception. And and by doing Regulation D and accredited investor, we tried to make it at least easier for people to know whether you're in or you're out of having to register. We all appreciate principles-based rules because they they try to receive an outcome. It's also not good, though, this uncertainty. Should this be registered or should it not? And up until then, there was just a number of basically court decisions to guide issuers who who want to uh, seek to raise capital. Um, Now, I raise this because this idea that hey, there can be judicial uncertainty and maybe the SEC ought to do rules. Well, there are, frankly, very good parallels to what's going on in the crypto market today. Now, I know that's not necessarily the focus of the Angel Capital Association, but this is something that has been a traditional role of a regulator. Let's try and bring some clarity and uniformity to the rules and, more importantly, make it workable. So going back to the definition of accredited investor, well, we've learned a lot in the four decades plus experience with this. And one of the things is, while wealth or income might be one measure, it's not the only one. And I think we've also learned things in other areas, like, for instance, on crowdfunding, where we have, we've recognized that it's not so much if you're a dollar over $200,000, you could put all of your, your assets in a single investment. Right. Diversification, it's much broader. Right. And, and, and thinking about why shouldn't someone, if I have $100,000 in investments or, or a larger number, be able to put a portion of that 
private offerings. Why is it that, oh, you don't make enough money? Because income, $200,000, it means different things in different parts of the country. Absolutely. $200,000 means a lot less in certain communities than it does, say, in New York City or San Francisco and ditto on the million dollars in, in net worth. So are there other ways? You know, one thing also is by solely relying on things like net worth, you skewer it to, for instance, to people who might just be had many more years to invest. And that affects risk tolerance, for instance. Somebody who has a 30 or 40-year investment horizon, their ability to have it be an illiquid investment that might not have a payoff for five, seven years down the road, they can deal with that, especially as part of a diversified portfolio. If somebody is already in retirement who is, say, 80 years old, that may not be appropriate, even though they meet, the, for instance, the net worth test. There's a lot more sophistication out there. You know, I know we did at least what I thought was a very good first step to look at people who had a, a, a Series 7 and certain other designations. I remember before that, we, we adopted that rule. Everyone I spoke with said, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Even those who, who might oppose or, or really want to narrow the pool of credit investors says, the logic behind prohibiting somebody who can legally recommend one of those investments because they've done the due diligence and under their, whether it's regulation, best interest, or as a fiduciary investment advisor who can recommend that, but they can't buy it. Right. That kind of seems to be very inconsistent. So I thought that was a very good first step. I wish I would love to go back and, and, and say, well, are there others, for instance, accountants, if Mm -hmm. one of the, the, the part is there are that you need to be able to understand financial statements that makes sense of people who invest in and who understand and have been educated in accounting could do that. And that's just, I would say, the tip of the, the iceberg of, I think, additional ways that you can, you can expand that. But, you know, we're trying to capture sophistication. So I think there are a lot of things that ought to be thought about, which is why I would be very sad if we just took this very, let's do a very simplistic adjust for inflation, and that's it, as opposed to let's take a comprehensive look at what it means to be an accredited investor with the appropriate level of sophistication or diversification, where you should be able to make these and, and, and why th- there are ways that we could kind of widen the pool without necessarily doing anything to harm investor protection. Absolutely. And in fact, I read through the remarks that you gave at the 51st Annual Securities Regulation Institute in January in California. They were fantastic. I'm going to make sure that I put a link to that in the show notes so that people can read it in more detail. You just did a great job summarizing. But those two things about what you just said, was what they decided in 1982 really the right ratio of you know what it really means to say that you are an accredited investor and you happen to have enough wealth in order to do that. And then I love what you just said about the time horizon. Yeah, it's if somebody's much younger, they may not hit that wealth threshold, but they should at least have the opportunity. And now they, they kind of do because they've got the ability to do some equity crowdfunding if they wanted to, if they were not accredited yet. But I think that we have to start educating younger people when they do have this longer time horizon, because it does take a long time for a startup to build and to scale and to do all these great things. So 
yeah, I'm going to definitely put that in the show notes. The other thing that, you know, we've talked about a lot at the ACA is about how do we expand the levels of sophistication like you, t- you were talking about? Is it through like accountants? And there, there's a little bit that's happened so far. You can take the Series 65 test and things like that. But, you know, we've put together some virtual courses through the Angel University that could help angels. We have the Anna Bill Payne ACA University courses that kind of run the gamut of everything from you know, the basics all the way up to, you know, some advanced angel things like term sheets and cap tables. So we put a proposal into the SEC to say, hey, we'd be happy to put something together that would say, hey, here's a level of sophistication that we could say somebody now understands the risks. And the thing that drives me crazy about the Series 65 test is they really don't explain for a private investment like a startup, you know, what the risks are that are really involved. So if we had something like that, what what are your thoughts on a proposal like that? Well, I think, you know, it's something that's at least worth exploring and talking about what it would look like, whether or not it would reach the outcomes that we want, which is do people understand what they, they're actually getting into? And, you know, this is something where you might have heard this before, but someone said certain types of investments are sold, not bought. You know, we mm-hmm. want people really to be buying them and, and as opposed to basically being subject to perhaps some less than scrupulous salespersons who are pushing investments and they find somebody, oh, you're an accredited investor, you know, I'm going to offload this on to you. So we want to really, at least the way I look at it, there are people who want to buy these because they've got a certain amount of knowledge or interests or others. How do you capture that, that they can understand that and the whole point of investing is to take on risk. If you don't want risk, you should be in a bank account. Right. right. Or other very, very ultra or this very, very little investment risk like one of our uh, government money market funds that are by SC, offered by SEC registrants. Right. The whole reason for investing, though, is you want to have be able to take risk. And the reason why you take risk is you want to have compounded returns over time if you put it in a bank account or in a money market fund, chances are you may not even exceed the rate of inflation. So if we're thinking about building wealth, especially building wealth for the long run, and I know there are all sorts of different investors. Some would like you to you know, have extraordinary returns over a very short period. But I think for, for those who think about it, it's still a challenge to pick out the ones that are going to succeed from the ones that are going to fail, especially over a 20, 30, 40-year time horizon. Just go look at, even on, on the public side, who are the, the 20 largest capitalized companies in 1980 versus today? It's very, very significant changes. So yeah, I, you know, I think it's you know, part of it is like working out exactly how it would look like, but that's what I, a regulator can do. We can have those. Let's explore. Let's think about it. And that's something that, I think we could do more of. We haven't done a whole lot. For instance, we haven't hosted a large number of, of roundtables. And really, this is where I, th- I see the committee stepping into that vacuum right now. Um, we do have the our annual small business forum, but I, I would like to see more uh, about this uh, uh, and how can we achieve these potential changes in, in, in policies or at least final work products that might be able to help us inform us about what, if any, policy changes ought to be made. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a good point that 
you know, in some cases, and the SEC obviously is very, uh, there's so many things that the SEC is dealing with. You know, my husband's a public company CFO, so I hear all about the public side at the dinner table. And then, of course, you know, I'm very involved in angel side and all the startup side. And then there's everything in between and all the other things. So we do hear about fraud in certain cases, but when it comes to angel world, you know, we really don't hear that much about it. However, we do have losses. And there are considerable losses when you talk about the number of companies that actually don't make it. And in a lot of cases, it's not because they were fraudulent. It's just because they tried really hard. They ran out of money or they didn't, their tech didn't work or whatever the story was. So, you know, we're of course trying to make sure that there isn't fraud, but, you know, losses happen. So how do you look at that as far as like countering that type of a perception of fraud versus loss? Yeah, well, there is a very big and important distinction between the two. I mean, the whole point, especially in startup phases of investing, is there will be a fair amount of risk here. And that's not unusual. Taking that risk, even losses, I would say, as long as you don't have false and misleading statements about what exactly you're doing to attract that investment, then the onus is on. The investor determine well what's my risk tolerance and part of this gets into diversification yeah. you could have someone who says yeah i know this really is a long shot but that's why i'm only allocating to my long shots five percent of my portfolio absolutely yeah and, and and the money that i absolutely cannot lose i've got that in very low risk investments and so think about it as slices of the portfolio you know here's what i need to be very very safe here's where i can take Will make more risk, and then you know this slice I'm going to take at the other end. I'm willing to go for for real long shots, and occasionally they pay off. You know, if one thinks about where Amazon was in say 1996, and I remember when when Google went public in the early 2000s, and same thing with Facebook when when they had their IPO and and he bought it when, when they went public. Someone would probably say those are along the public stocks, much more higher risk than, say, some much longer old old line issuers. There were a lot of other the contemporaries who went public at the same time that all failed. They went mm-hmm. bankrupt or bought off at, at cents on, on the dollar. But there were new business models. Some succeeded. Small numbers succeeded. A lot of them failed. Even in failure, though, we tend to learn things, what works and what doesn't work. I remember when I was in law school, I spent one summer with a pharmaceutical company, and they fully expected a lot of their drug efforts to fail. That was just the nature. That's why you do a lot of them. And if you're lucky, you're going to get one or two real breakthrough pharmaceutical drugs that are going to make a difference. Most of them will fail, but you also learn things observations otherwise, and why it doesn't work, what to avoid perhaps in the future. And so I, I see in the investment area no different. When people invest and there are failures, you hope there are lessons learned. Why didn't this technology work? Oh, maybe it was we couldn't get the right distribution to monetize that. We had the ideas there. The innovation that is allowed by our capital markets has really made the U.S., second and none when it comes to creating new ideas. That's why entrepreneurs from all over the world want to come to the U.S. That's right. Yeah. It's very important, I think, at the SEC that we're not merit regulators. 
we don't say this is a good idea. That's not a bad idea. And and yeah, I, I think I mentioned I'm a former state securities regulator before I joined the SEC. And I, I did, I think, mention this in my uh, my remarks last month, which is imagine that Massachusetts Secretary of State's office saying, you know what? Apple stock is just too risky for our residents to, to purchase in, in their IPO. Again, if someone says, I'm going to allocate a small slice of this to this upstart called Apple, which I think went, can close to bankruptcy a couple of times before couple it, times, it, yeah. it was today. How do we know as a regulator what's going to succeed and what's not going to succeed? Right. Absolutely. Well, Commissioner Ueda, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today and sharing with us your thoughts on all things related to small businesses and startups. Well, thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. To connect with me, visit my website at marshadawood.com. And if you're looking to learn more about investing in the changes that you want to see in the world, sign up for Anne and Bill Payne's ACA Angel University classes. You go to angelcapitalassociation.org, all one word, to find out the schedule. And beginning in the fall of 2023, classes will be available on demand. Many classes are offered, everything from the angel investing basics. So there's classes on the fundamentals, risks, due diligence, term sheets, valuations, returns and portfolio strategy. And for a deeper dive, there are advanced classes, which include capitalization tables, startup boards, and exit strategies. If you're not already a member of the Angel Capital Association, you can become one for the low price of $295 for the year, and that will give you unparalleled access to discounts, free webinars with a huge archive of content, networking opportunities, and much more. We'd love to have you join us. All content for this website is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Well, Marsha, that's me, does serve on the SEC Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee. My views are my own and not the views of the SEC or my fellow colleagues on the committee. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the host, me, or the Angel Capital Association and neither specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services, listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax investing legal or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.